0: The process of transitioning from high school to college can be quite challenging, especially for first-generation college students. In this episode, we explore a variety of techniques that we can use to help students successfully navigate this critical period in their educational journey. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
1: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist,
0: and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer.
1: Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego.
0: Our guest today is Dr. Lisa Nunn, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of San Diego and the author of 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty, a week-by-week resource for teaching first-year and first-generation students. Welcome, Lisa.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. We're grateful to have you. Today's teas are... I'm drinking
1: orange spice. Yum.
0: I'm drinking ginger peach black tea.
1: I'm really boring and drinking afternoon tea again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've invited you here to discuss your book. 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty. Could you tell us a bit about the research project that you engaged in that inspired this book?
2: Yes. The bigger project that this book came out of is actually a project on sense of belonging among college students. So I interviewed students in their very first semester at the end of their first year and at the end of their second year at two different universities, trying to get a sense of how students do or don't develop a sense of belonging on campus. And what happened was, as I was interviewing students, particularly in their very first semester, I was asking them a lot of questions about academic belonging, also questions about social belonging. But the stuff that came forward for this book was mostly on academic belonging. So I would ask them, what's your favorite class? And what's that professor doing that's working for you? And what's your least favorite class? And what's that professor doing that's not working for you? Just to get them to talk about their experiences of whether or not they felt like they belonged academically in college or in their particular classes. And I just found myself keeping side notes. So a student would say something great that their professor did. And I would think, oh my gosh, I'm going to do that in my class. And I take a little (laughs) note. And then on the flip side too, students would talk about something they found particularly frustrating. And I would think, oh, I do that. And it (laughs) never occurred to me that you could receive it that way. I'm never going to do that again. So I had this kind of running list of do's and don'ts. And I started to share them with other faculty on my own campus. And it slowly developed into this idea of Every single week, we could be doing just one or two targeted things that might really make a big difference at that moment in their transition to college.
0: In general, I think it's probably a good strategy to talk to our students more and get that type of feedback. So I'm glad you did this. And I enjoyed reading the book. Thank you. A good deal of focus in the book is actually focused on the student voices so that when you talk about a strategy, you give some examples of students. That's a little different than most books on teaching and learning. Could you talk a little bit about why you adopted that strategy?
2: It's partly from the way that these strategies came out of a different research project, not entirely different, I guess, but it's a qualitative study where student voices are the data. So to show my evidence for why I was recommending this strategy or that strategy, it just made sense to include the data itself from students. But also, I really wanted to give faculty a little glimpse into what it feels like to be going through the things that first-year students are going through, and particularly first-gen students, just to hear in their own
1: words what the world looks like and feels like for them in the classroom. I think sometimes as faculty, you might've been in that position at one point in time, but perhaps it was a while ago, right? It was
2: a (laughs) while ago, and many of us were not first-gen students. And I really think even in my own teaching. Even though I might have first-year students and I know they're in their very first semester, in my mind, I think, oh, but they just figure it all out. By the time they're sophomores and juniors and seniors, they've got it all worked out and you forget how painful and how critical some of these ups and downs and transitional moments are in that first semester.
0: And the ones that survive to the time they get to be juniors and seniors are ones who have figured it all out. But there's a lot of people who get lost along the way.
2: Exactly right.
0: You focus both, as you noted, on first-generation and first-year students. In what ways are their interests and needs similar and different from those of other students?
2: The transition to college is a real challenge for most students. And first-gen students tend to have particular challenges, but all students are getting the hang of it. Like we just said, by the time they're in their second year or their third year, they've figured out some habits that work for them, but they're just learning those habits in that first semester. So it's a particularly important time to pay attention to students and their brand new experiences and they're just figuring out what they need as well. As for first-gen students, the definition of first-gen is that you don't have parents who have these college experiences that they can just pass on wisdom or offer unsolicited advice when you're having a struggle of some kind. And it's helpful for faculty and everyone on campus to just keep in mind that reaching out or offering unsolicited advice is exactly what students need and not everyone's getting that from their family life.
1: Why is the focus on first-generation students important to closing performance gaps that result from differences in quality of primary and secondary background education?
2: So first-generation students are likely to be from low-income backgrounds. Not all of them, certainly. But this is the way economics works in the United States. If you have a college degree, you have stronger earning power. So if your parents have college degrees, you're less likely to be in a low-income neighborhood. And low-income neighborhoods tend to have mediocre at best K through 12 public education. So if you went to your neighborhood school, you are just much less likely to have been Prepared for college as well as your college classmates who went to some very excellent public schools or even private schools. So, first gen students and low income in general students tend to come in the college doors, plenty smart to handle the work and very eager and motivated to be successful. But they just may not have had that high quality content in their physics class or their English composition class. And it's about content and it's also about study skills. They may not have been practicing the same kind of learning and studying and homework habits that have been really instilled in students in higher quality, more academically rigorous schools.
0: What types of strategies can instructors use to help students who haven't been exposed to these more effective study strategies or who have weaker backgrounds in certain areas?
2: There are several. And again, many of these are the kinds of comments that students in interviews told me that their favorite professors were doing and that I realized many of them that I don't do. And one is to offer a study guide. I used to think that giving a study guide for the midterms and the final to my students meant that I was doing their thinking for them because I try very hard on my syllabus to have weekly headings that summarize the issue at hand and On my lecture slides, I have definitions of key concepts. Key concepts are in the headings of the lecture slides. I mean, I really try to signpost it. And I just didn't realize that a lot of first-gen students don't have the habit. They have never developed this skill, have never had to based on the kind of high school experiences they had. Develop the skill of sifting through mountains of information and figuring out what is the most important stuff to really focus on for an exam. So not offering a study guide only exacerbated this difference between students in my class who had excellent K-12 educations and those who didn't have such an excellent K-12 education because they already knew how to do this. And it's a skill that you cultivate. And so I have now committed to helping cultivate that skill. I offer a study guide for the first midterm. And then we work together to learn how to create such a study guide as the future midterms move on. And by the final, they're on their own. Okay. So that's one, study guides. Also, one of my favorite strategies from this book is the mini midterm. It's often week six, week seven, maybe even week eight of the semester before they get real feedback on their work after the first midterm has been given. And it takes a little while for us to grade the midterms and give them back. And it's only then this very late moment in the semester when students realize that they got a D or an F or maybe even a C can be heartbreaking. And they just are learning or discovering in that moment that their study habits aren't quite up to snuff. And if we give them a teeny tiny, right? Mine is two questions, but it's a two question version of the real midterm. And I give it the end of week two or the beginning of week three. And I grade it as fast as I can so that they can figure out first what my test style is like, what my grading expectations are, and also whether or not they are taking the right notes in class or thinking about the concepts in the right way to do well. So I very explicitly have this conversation about why we have the mini midterm, and that has been a game changer for my classes. And then other ways to address some other strategies in the book about addressing this difference in levels of preparation is students tell me that they really appreciate it when their professor, like calculus professor says, calculus is hard. I know it's hard, hang in there, right? This stuff is hard. And they really feel disheartened when we say things like, yeah, I know this is review for most of you from your AP chemistry class or whatever it is. So changing our habits of speech just a little bit can help just motivate and validate students who are feeling a little unsure or a little unhappy with how competent they feel academically in the first week. I also recommend that we explain our pedagogic rationales for the things that we require or prohibit in our classes, and also just to tell students right out of the gate, what is the best way to study for your class? Because every professor is different. For example, I don't want students to give me a word-for-word definition in the Blue Book exam answer the word-for-word definition that they learned from the book or learned from my lecture slides, I want them to say it in their own words so I can see if they've really mastered the content rather than memorize a definition. But different classes and different professors want different things. Sometimes it is a word-for-word definition. So anyway, just to let them know exactly what we're looking for and why.
0: So don't let the test be a surprise or something where students will say, this isn't what I was expecting so that students can prepare appropriately to meet the learning objectives that you've set.
2: Exactly, one of the students in my study called it the guess what's in the professor's head game.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I found that trying to make things a little more explicit does change the classroom atmosphere in general students are much more open to letting the faculty know where they're struggling or each other know where they're struggling. If you set those expectations up front and say things like, hey, maybe it's been a long time since you've actually learned something new, like totally new Mm -hmm. and learning something new is really hard. That's exactly right.
0: And that strategy you suggested of letting students know that this is going to be difficult and it's going to be work and you're going to have to work through those things and that everyone has to when they're learning it. Also, perhaps might help build a growth mindset. And I think a number of your strategies may address that growth mindset concept. Could you talk a little bit about some ways in which we can help students develop that mindset that they can achieve?
2: I think that the growth mindset is a helpful way to think about things especially helping students understand that just because it's an intro class doesn't mean it's easy. You're learning a whole new discipline, a whole new way of thinking about the world perhaps. And it might be an intro class, but it's a little bit like learning how to play guitar or learning how to dribble a soccer ball. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of mistakes and kind of falling flat in order to get the hang of this brand new thing. And students often have this misconception that just because it's a 100 level class and introduction is in the title, that it's somehow going to be easy for them. And then they're frustrated and confused when it's not so easy. Just having that in our minds and in the way that we communicate what's going on in the class can help. But also thinking about failure as this phrase failing forward, growing and learning based on our failures rather than seeing failure as evidence that we aren't cut out for this kind of work. And some of that, again, I think is just faculty holding that idea in our head so that when we're just communicating in everyday ways with students, that comes out, this idea that, yeah, a mistake is great. That tells you where you need to focus some energy for next time. In the book, I have some explicit strategies. Late in the semester, I suggest sharing a failure CV, which is kind of a fun activity. I wrote one myself. It was a little embarrassing actually to write it myself and to put it in the book about my own life and my own failures. I tried to focus on my undergraduate days, but there are also some good ones online. Students in these interviews would tell me how successful we seem and how smart and how accomplished. And it's wonderful for them when we admit that we have failed along the way a million times, it feels very reassuring. So a failure CV, also I recommend helping students use this tool, 15 Questions to Find Your Life Purpose. Faculty also, I call them stories of woe, sharing some academic story of woe, some terrible mistake or bad grade or missed assignment that happened to you as an undergraduate, just to let students know that it happens to all of us,
1: and we just pick ourselves up and move forward. I was just sharing some of those stories this morning (laughs) with some of my students. Who are putting too much pressure on themselves and expecting to have results immediately when it was something brand new that we were just starting, expecting that somehow they were going to catch on immediately. Certainly was, I think, reassuring for the students to hear that. You know, I also had those moments.
2: (laughs) Exactly right. And some of us even failed a class that ended up being a foundational class for the future discipline we pursued much later on. It just
1: happens. One of the other things that happens a lot for first-year students is transitioning to a new place, being away from family, or just not being in a situation where more structure is employed for them. They have to make their own structure, their own study time, their own rules about eating and taking care of themselves. Can you talk a little bit about ways that faculty can help guide and support students in those ways?
2: In the book, I recommend just taking a few minutes of class time.
1: It doesn't have to be class time, of course. And just
2: sharing, for example, sharing what stress management activities you do in your own life. More than one first-year student told me that they didn't have any. They had zero stress management techniques in their repertoires of life. And they were just realizing that they needed to learn how to take time for themselves. They needed to learn how to figure out when they need some time away from people or when they need to be around certain people or activities to re-energize they're just figuring this out. Just spending five minutes telling what you do when you need to relieve stress or what you do to keep sane week by week. I also always share with them, meditation, for example, is something I always think about doing and I never do it. So it's kind of an aspirational stress management technique for me. <laughs> but what I actually do is go for a walk. That's my go-to I kind of let them know that sometimes we imagine ourselves to be these much more balanced humans than we are, and that's okay too. Stress management and just reminding them even in just small ways, small sentences, small moments that when we get overwhelmed, we cope in sometimes very unhealthy ways. Too much alcohol, too much other kinds of substances self-sabotage, where we postpone doing something that intimidates us until it gets to the point where there's no way that we have enough time to really do it successfully. And these are things that all of us deal with in life but are especially acute for college students with all these new routines and new deadlines and new expectations.
1: I feel like some students who are at the senior level just getting ready to transition into being a professional Have that same scary moment is happening as well. And asking those same questions or reminding them about those same strategies can be useful at that moment in time too. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point.
0: One of the things you mentioned in talking to students, you discovered that quite a few students had issues where they initially created a network of friends, but then sometimes that didn't work out so well. And you suggest that one useful thing you can do in the classroom is to help students build a wider social network. Could you talk a little bit about that and some of the strategies you recommend to help students develop a wider network?
2: I recommend an explicit interview assignment. And of course, people can modify this in ways that make sense for their own classes. But it's around late October, early November, I discovered that first-year students, it's not that everyone feels unsatisfied with the friendships they've made, but they're all, or most of them at least, seem to be hungry for more. and. What they say to me is that they feel like they would like to reach out and make some new friends, but everyone seems already kind of clicked off into their social groups. They themselves feel clicked off, and they don't know how to break through those barriers. And I was really surprised to discover how common this was among students, and none of them seemed to indicate that they knew that other people were feeling the same way. I give examples of this in the book that people can just print out and use, So I ask them to interview one person in class and then outside of class, they have to interview at least one more person and I recommend up to five people. And I tell them explicitly this activity is designed. Yeah, you're going to practice, you know, thinking and having conversations about a sociological issue. That's important. But it's designed on purpose right now because we know that first year students are feeling a little hungry for more friendships. And so choose someone that you've kind of had your eye on as a friend and invite them to do this interview with you. And maybe you'll end up in a study group together, or maybe you'll be able to have dinner together that night, or I don't know what, but maybe a friendship will bloom. It's very explicit in that way, in the way that I present it. And other professors that my students told me about in interviews talk about the way that the professor strategically organizes study groups among students in the class. If you're an early morning study person, go to the back corner of the room. If you're a late night study person, go to this front corner of the room, mix and mingle, exchange phone numbers, and kind of coordinating for students this ability to network in a way that they might be too shy to do on their own.
1: Or might just not have a way to facilitate on their own. I can imagine How would you know necessarily who is an early morning person? But if you are one, that's who you want to meet. Those are the people who have the same kind of time schedule. So that seems really strategic and such an easy thing to do.
2: Exactly. When that student told me about that the first time in an interview, I thought, oh, right. That's about five minutes of class on the first day or whenever. Easy. And it really
1: solves a problem for students. It's funny how sometimes these things can be just so easy, but so easily overlooked. Yeah, Exactly.
0: And those types of connections can help improve college's retention rates and so forth, because when students have more connections with other people on campus, other students, they're much more likely to want to be successful and to want to continue. So it can help increase the odds of students staying in longer, I would think.
2: That's exactly the goal. I think about all of this as connected to belonging. How do we let all the members of our community know that They belong here. They're valued here. We want them here and their success matters to us.
1: One of the topics related to that academic belonging that you mentioned at the beginning of our interview that I think about a lot is how to connect first-year students to potential mentors and how to get them connected to role models or people besides just their peer group because they don't necessarily have an adult on campus that they look up to or can go to for things. How do you help facilitate students finding those connections?
2: Some campuses like my own have structures for first-year students. I teach a class that is entirely comprised of first-year students. I am their academic advisor until they declare a major. So some institutions have tried to structure this. Even that, there are students who don't quite gravitate toward that advisor relationship. And the strategies that I recommend in the book are very interpersonal. One of the strategies is just this week, pick five students to reach out to. Maybe it's to send a short email, or maybe it's to approach them before or after class and just say hi and make it clear that you know who they are and they're on your radar. I also recommend when you talk about your office hours, or first of all, to talk about your office hours and to tell students what they might expect in there, but to also personally invite students when you're chatting with them or if you have a moment before class, just kind of wander the aisles of the desk and say hi to people and make it a habit to just invite students to come and see you in office hour to talk more about something or to get to know each other better. All of this is connected to not just being available, but being perceived as available to students. One of my favorite strategies in the book is to not seem busy. And this is really hard because we are very busy. But students tell me in these interviews that, especially before and after class, this is kind of a testing ground for some students. They want to approach and ask a question or just even say hello or thank you for the class. And they try it out to get a sense of how you might be and can they be brave enough to come to your office hours. And when we are frantically putting our things together or if you happen to have four minutes before class starts trying to get that one last thing read or marked up, the sense that we are too busy for them is a message that they take home. They take very seriously. If you can just linger and just not be doing anything, just seem calm and available to be approached with a question, even just for those three minutes right before class starts, it makes a big difference for students feeling like they can approach us. And I also recommend holding one of your office hours just before or just after your first year class so that you can tell students, I'm right here. Walk with me to my office if you want. Got office hour right now at the end of class, let's continue this conversation. We all hold office hours. We all know that students can email us, but to be perceived as available is one more dimension.
0: One issue for first-year students is that in the past when they were in high school, they often do not see going to someone's office as being a very positive thing. So creating that welcoming environment could be really useful. And I know this is one I struggle with because often when students stop by, I'm going to a meeting or I'm in the middle of a meeting. But making yourself open is really useful. And I try to do that by saying, I have to leave right now. But if you stop back, I'll be here between two and five or two and six or something similar. And that often works in them coming back. But it is a concern, I think, that many of us have that we do get stuck in a lot of meetings. I had seven hours of meetings yesterday, for example, and I had a lot of students who wanted to see me about projects and I tried to accommodate them. In some cases, I'll share my phone number and tell them they can call me later if they have other questions, but it can be challenging.
2: It is challenging. I remember feeling so flattered in graduate school the first time a professor was racing off to some other meeting and had to cut our conversation short. And he said, Can we walk and talk? And I was like, What does that mean? He's like, I need to walk over to this meeting, but it's 10 minutes away. Can you walk with me? And I was so flattered that he was willing to continue the conversation. Our campus is much smaller, it doesn't really take 10 minutes to walk anywhere, but I try to remember that with students and just.
1: I have to go, but why don't you keep asking me? Keep asking me this question. Walk with me. Or I need to eat lunch, but you're welcome to come sit with me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You suggest that it's really helpful to be open with students and to encourage the students to come in and talk to you, but also it's important to maintain boundaries. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: This is something I think a lot of us learn the hard way. I know that I did, but I am completely convinced that setting boundaries is beneficial for our students as well as ourselves. So in my institution, we have to hold five hours of office hours a week. That is enough time. Now, certainly I'll make appointments if someone's schedule is crazy, but that is just enough time. I don't need to be available at any whimsical moment that students might need me in a panic, but also emotionally. I want my students to know that I care about them. I care deeply about their well-being. And for me, the way to show that most effectively, of course, if they're sharing a personal trouble, to listen compassionately. But the best I can do is guide them toward the resources that might actually offer some resolution to their struggles. And I used to Take on my students' problems as my own and carry that emotional burden around. And what it did was exhaust me. And it made me unhelpful to other students or even to those same students in the end because I was depleted. And it made me unhelpful to my own family and my own friends and my own self. I was just depleted. So, setting healthy boundaries with the amount of emotional care that you can or are willing to give is good. You're not shortchanging anyone. You're modeling healthy behavior. You're also practicing self-care. You know, I am not qualified to be a mental health counselor. I don't want the job. I don't have the credentials for it. And it doesn't serve anyone for me to play that role at all. I can just dial the phone and help students get their own appointment with someone who can do
1: that. Those are always good reminders.
0: I think we all fall into that at first, especially. One of the issues that many first-generation students have is that their faculty may come from very different backgrounds, their fellow students may, and they may be in a discipline where they're underrepresented. What are some of the things you recommend to help students get past that stereotype threat?
2: One is to simply add images of scholars and researchers that you're talking about or reading about in your class just add images to your lecture slides. Students may not be able to recognize from the name of the author what this person's background might be or whether or not it's a person who looks like me, for example. And it's really helpful. So I'm in sociology and this is relatively easy for me. My syllabus is full of scholars of color and women scholars and people who present their gender in non-traditional ways. And so an image is a really powerful tool to just show off the diversity in our field. And I don't linger on the slide, I just put up the image and I say, here she is, we're reading a chapter today from her first book, and then we just move along. And I realize that some disciplines don't have that luxury. You might be teaching a class where almost everyone's white or almost everyone's male on your syllabus, but I hope that this suggestion even helps people who teach such classes to think of creative ways to include more current scholars of color or women into their classroom. Even if you're not reading a whole week's worth of content on someone, you might be able to present on five minutes on exciting new work in the field. And the idea is that, especially on my campus, students of color might look around the room or look around campus and feel like it's a world of white faces, but that's not true entirely for academics. And presenting images in this way is a very powerful message that scholars of color and women and non-gender conforming folks have a routine everyday place in the academic world. Here they are. Even if when you look around this classroom, it may not seem that way. So that's one. And the other strategies that I think that speak to issues like stereotype threat are again, these small gestures that faculty can make to reach out to students. Just this five people that you might send a quick email to and just share your favorite TED Talk or a great podcast that you just listened to or whatever it is. Just this idea that you're on my mind, I'm thinking of you. Even if I just got your name off my roster, it doesn't have to be some person that you actually have already established a connection with, but to really validate that student's presence in your class, in your department, on your campus, that they matter, that we see them.
1: Those are really great suggestions and, again, things that are just super easy to implement that aren't time-consuming. They just take a little time and thought. And if we have those five hours of office hours where students aren't actually showing up, you probably have time to do it. (laughs) That's the idea.
0: (laughs) You're working on another book called College Belonging, How First-Year and First-Generation Students Navigate Campus Life. What will be some of the differences in this new book?
2: The current book is just a targeted, particularly for faculty, set of ideas and strategies to implement in our interactions with students. So, the College Belonging book isn't targeted that way at all, but it is about the same general issue of sense of belonging for our students. As you mentioned earlier, John, Sense of belonging is associated with all kinds of positive outcomes for students better persistence rates, better graduation rates, better overall well being. And the College Belonging book is more about articulating some of the issues and dynamics around developing a sense of belonging. First, this idea that students experience academic belonging separately from social belonging, even though they're interrelated and overlap a bit, the scholarship on belonging really tends to focus on social belonging. And there's a lot less out there on what academic belonging is and how students navigate through it. And also thinking about The institutional structures at each of the two campuses in my study that really foster and promote maybe social belonging over academic belonging or vice versa. Yeah, it's a bigger study about belonging and what the institutional features are and the particular obstacles or kind of wide open, straightforward pathways that students experience. There are real differences for first gen students compared to continuing generation
1: students. So, exploring all of those differences. Well, that sounds really exciting. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds super interesting. It does. So, we always wrap up by asking, what's next? So, that's it's coming. What's next? <laughs> This bigger book, it's not written yet.
2: So what's coming is the next book on the larger dynamics of sense of belonging at college. And where this book, 33 Simple Strategies, is targeted for faculty interactions with students, the College Belonging book will have recommendations for institutions. That's great. I have no idea what's going to be next
1: next after that, so that's as good as I can get you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Writing a book is plenty.
1: Thank you. It feels like it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's not going to take any time or anything. So, <laughs> It'll, I'm just going to whip that out this weekend. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> we'll check back next week yeah. to see good. an update. update.
1: Send <laughs> <on> your draft.
0: <laughs> thank you for joining us. This was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to see your next book and also to try some of the things that were in the book we just talked about today. Thank you so much. I'm glad that these ideas are useful. Well, thank you. This was really great.
0: Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Chris Wallace, Kelly Knight, Joseph Andrew, Jacob Alveson, Brittany Jones, and Gabriella Perez.